0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, open up with me to Revelation chapter 4. And as you're doing that, just a couple things. If you have kids in youth group, a couple things you want to write down is that uh, we have a, uh, a youth sort of ugly sweater Christmas party coming up this coming Wednesday, uh, the 15th. So to, or 6 to 830 Sign up on a welcome center. And also, we have a youth retreat for Middle Tennessee Calvary Chapels are coming together on January 21st through the 23rd at Horton Haven Christian Camp in College Grove. It's $120 per child. Scholarships are available, so write those dates down. And uh, if you're interested in that, make sure you contact Daniel Fernandez for more information. And last but not least, if you're involved in children's ministry or you're interested in children's ministry, there's two meetings going on next week and the week after, after the second service, so you want to make sure that you're part of that. Revelation chapter 4, stand with me if you will. We're going to read our text this morning. want to introduce three hermeneutical principles. No, I'm just kidding. Was that like drinking from a fire hydrant last week? (laughs) I I know it was, but it was necessary to set up what we're about to go through, so if you missed it, you're going to want to go back and listen to it it's it's technical but it's important so that you understand how people come at different interpretations in the book of Revelation. So, Revelation chapter 4 John writing says after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments and gold, with gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and Heels of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, the second living creature, like an ox, the third living creature, with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. who is seated on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask you, Lord, to just speak directly to our hearts this morning as we consider a glimpse of heaven the throne and the one sitting upon it. Lord, will you help us put an urgency in our hearts, Father, to, number one, just to to make sure that everyone around us knows that there isn't a heaven that exists and that heaven is heaven because you're there. And Lord, will you use this in our lives to encourage us to fight the good fight? And maybe for some this morning, Lord, that don't know you, will you give them the hope of heaven, the eternal promise Uh, of Jesus Christ being with him forever and ever. So we thank you for what you're going to do in our lives this morning. Through your word we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. How many of you guys are daydreamers? Any daydreamers in here? Anybody like to daydream? So like maybe six or eight of you. So, you know, perhaps you can identify with the kid on the screen here. He's a daydreamer. It's just another day at the office for him. You know, he's, he's enjoying himself. I know as a, as an, as a young boy, I love to daydream. I love to just let my mind go. You know, I could do that for hours and just think about all these various things. As I grew up and got a little bit older, I started daydreaming about other things, like winning the lottery and what I would do with all that money, you know. I spent it like 12 different ways. And then when I became a believer, I started to daydream about something that was far greater than this world, and something that is actually a reality for me because I have put my trust in Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and Savior. Of course, what I'm talking about is daydreaming about heaven. Have you ever just let your mind go about what heaven will be like? We have all kinds of different ideas and thoughts about it, and there are even some books written. People have said that they have gone there. I'm not here to talk about whether that was true or not. Here's what I know is that there is a book written about heaven that we can be sure the description inside of it is true and just and real. And so here we find John giving us a peek into heaven, a glimpse into heaven. We get to see a little bit what heaven will be like. Perhaps they won't match your thoughts. Oftentimes our thoughts are gravitated towards us and what we will miss in heaven, maybe it's a pet that died and we're wondering if that pet will be there or a family member or not to associate one with the other, by the way, but, uh, you know, the, the, the pet first is like, hold on a second, you know. We often internalize and make heaven about us, don't we? Oh, it's the place of no mores, right? No more tears, no more, no more pain, no more suffering, No more death. No more struggle with sin. And I say yes and amen to that. I am excited about that. But here's what you have to understand. Heaven is not heaven because of those things. Heaven is heaven because of the one who dwells there. That's what makes heaven heaven. And so if we don't get our eyes on the right thing, we won't have the right picture of what heaven will be like. Thankfully, John does that for us here in this these, these next two chapters, chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, John talks about heaven. He tells us, he gives us a glimpse of it. And note, we'll note that his focus isn't on the streets of gold or the marvelous buildings or the green spaces that exist, which I'm sure are amazing, nor are they on the angelic hosts or the heavenly animals. But John's focus is drawn specifically to the throne of God and the one who sits upon it. The word throne is mentioned 18 times in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 and 13 times in chapter 14 alone. It makes sense that the throne of God is the focal point because Jesus said heaven is the throne of God. Matthew chapter 5 verses 34 and 35, he said, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. Or by earth, for it's the footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Some people have settled for the footstool, and Jesus says there's a better place for us. It's called heaven. It's heaven because it's where God dwells. It's where his throne is. The focal point of John here, the throne, represents the characteristics of the king. He is sovereign, ruling over all things. He's majestic and, and perfect in justice. He is holy and pure. He's worthy of praise and all joy. Eter- we find eternity through him, and we find our rest. And my favorite thing about the throne room of God is it is a place of, listen to this, grace upon grace. I love God's throne room. The Bible tells us in in the book of Hebrews that we can come boldly to what? The throne room of grace. God is a gracious God. He's a loving God. But all these other things as well. So we get an accurate picture of of who God is by the throne and what it represents. We're going to take a look at what John has to say about heaven. But before we do that, we're going to look how he gets there. We see in verse 1 here, there's a door and a command to come. Verse 1, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. John writes the words after this. In the Greek, it's meta tauta, speaking about the things that will come hereafter or the, after these things. What is he talking about? What did we just finish? Revelation chapter 2 and 3, speaking about the church. John says, after Jesus gave him specific words to seven literal churches in Asia Minor, after this metatauta, he says, and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. There is a portal that opens up for John here. And he is on earth gazing up at a door that's opened up and it piercing through that door is heaven itself. This is the same vision that Ezekiel saw. It's the same vision that the the prophet Isaiah saw. The same vision that Stephen, the very first martyr of the church, saw. It's a earthly view of heaven. And there is a door there. What does the door represent? The door represents Jesus Christ Himself. He is the door. He is the only door, according to John chapter 10, verses 7 through 10. So Jesus said again to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus says, if you want to go to heaven, you have to come through me. There is no other way to do it. Mankind wants to make their own way to God. You cannot do that. Jesus said there's one door. There's a narrow path that leads to that door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. Singular. You know, so that's why people tell us Christians that we're narrow-minded. So be it. I didn't write the word of God. The Lord did. He said there's one way, and I believe it. How about you? He is the door. Next, we find the word heaven. It's defined in three specific ways in the Bible. There are three different uh, types of heaven, or three, three heavens as it relates to the Word of God. There is the terrestrial heaven, which is known as the first heaven speaking of the sky, the place where the birds fly. There is another place called the celestial heaven, also known as the second heaven. That is speaking of space and the galaxies. And somewhere beyond that is what is known as the third heaven, where God dwells. The Apostle Paul gives us a little glimpse of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2-4. through 4. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body of, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter, Paul speaking about a man who I believe to be him, him himself. Perhaps I'm wrong, but it very well could be Paul not wanting to brag about the things that he has seen. The Lord even giving him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. Perhaps because of the things that the revelations that he's seen about the Lord. Remember, it was Jesus who knocked him off the high horse. He saw a vision of Jesus, spoke to Jesus, and here Paul speaks of a man who was caught up into the third heaven. I love that word, that phrase, caught up. That is harpazo. We talked about it last week. This is a picture of the rapture. This man was raptured up into the third heaven where God dwells. And what Paul says this mystery man said to him was, I can't tell you what it's like. Perhaps it's because there are no earthly words to describe what it is that he saw. No earthly words. Well, the Lord gives John uh, some words to describe heaven for us. But John is able to see from earth up into the third heaven where God dwells here. Not only did John see a door open to heaven, but he also heard the voice of Jesus. And and it's like a trumpet, meaning it was loud and it got his attention. And again, it wasn't the first time that he heard Jesus' voice like this. He heard his voice in chapter 1. When Jesus uh, began to speak to him as he was exiled on the island of Patmos, there to die, the Lord gave him the greatest revelation of his life. And maybe you're in a place today where you're like, man, I feel like I just want to die. Maybe the Lord is going to use that moment to give you perhaps the greatest revelation about who he is to you. Do not give up. Do not allow circumstances to weigh you down. Get your eyes on Jesus. Amen? John there hears this voice, and the words that he hears are this. Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place. Again, after this, the second time he, he mentions this, after this, Metatauta. This is a specific, Jesus is saying these words, so we have to go back to chapter 1, verse 19, where it's a reference to the third section and the final section of the book of Revelation. Uh, Jesus uh, told John, that he must take he must write down the things that were past tense that is chapter 1 that the things that are chapters 2 and 3 speaking about the church age and the things that must take place after this here we find Jesus uh, bringing us back to that divine outline and he's saying this is the third section of my divine outline of the book of revelation This is, I believe, a reference to the rapture. Here we find, uh, we don't find the word church mentioned again from after chapter 3 all the way through the tribulation period until Revelation chapter 22. I think it's verse 16. That's the next time we hear the word church. We hear saints. We hear, you know, representatives of God and different things like that, but not church. And that's important. If you question why I believe that, please go back last week. That's why I took an entire hour to tell you about the technicalities of why we come to this conclusion. So make sure you check that out on our website or go to our Facebook page or YouTube channel, and you can, you can, you can understand the biblical logic for why I believe this is the rapture that John is speaking about. He's caught up into heaven. The first thing that he notices According to verse 2 is the throne and the one who sits upon it. Look there with me. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and the one on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. John, it says at once in the Spirit. Was he in the body or out of the body? I don't know, but God knows. That's what Paul said. That works for me. Notice, he says there, though, that there was a throne that stood in heaven, that stood in heaven. That, That is important because what that is declaring is that the throne and the one who sits upon it is fixed in place, immovable, representing the permanency and immutability of the one who rules and reigns there. It's speaking of authority and power. Something else I want you to notice here is that it's not an unoccupied throne. What do we say when circumstances happen in our world today? God's still on the throne. Why do we say that? Because what we're saying is He's in control. We trust the Lord. We know that He's at work, and we're going to trust Him. He's got a plan. We understand that He's sovereign in everything that He allows, and we understand that you know, all the things that are going on in our world are all the circumstances that are happening right now are all part of his prophetic plan to position the world in a place for the second coming of Christ. We understand that because we read the Bible, and that's what the Bible says. And so, uh, you know, John is saying, hey, there is a throne in heaven that we can count on. That throne will, no one will ever dethrone God. Do you know that? Do you know Satan tried to dethrone God? Failed. He got canceled in heaven. He was cast out. He, had to go, he was cast down to, he, to, to the earth, wasn't he? And one day he will be bound for a 1,000 years. And then after that, released for just a short period of time, and then he will be cast in the lake of fire where he will pay for his sin forever and ever. And so will everyone else who decides to go there. Remember, God didn't make the lake of fire for us. He made it for the the devil and his angels. But you can choose to go there if if you want to. The Lord loves you, and he wants to draw you into relationship with himself. He does not send people to hell. People what? Choose to go there. That is the reality. John draws our attention not just to the throne, but also the one who sits upon it, our heavenly Father. At his right hand, Jesus Christ, so here we find this just eternal God sitting on his throne reigning and ruling in heaven. That should bring us great comfort this morning. Especially what's going on in our world today with the, with, with, in our country. It doesn't matter. I don't care if you're for our president or not. God's on the throne. We're not looking to the throne in D.C. to help us out in our situation, are we? If we are, we got the wrong perspective. We have to get our eyes on Jesus. John goes on and 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 he he describes the one who sat there as having uh, the appearance of jasper and carnelian or sardis. The jasper stone was a cryptocrystal in quartz or perhaps a diamond. Many people believe it was a diamond, but it was crystal clear in its appearance. Many believe that this represents the purity of God. The the carnelian stone was crimson red, like a ruby that represents perhaps the redemptive work of God. Many commentators draw our attention back to the Old Testament, specifically to the breastplate of the high priest, and those 12 stones represented on, those, uh, on, on that breastplate. Exodus chapter 28, verses 17 through 21, it says, you shall set in four rows of stones a row of sardis, topaz, and carbuncle, uh, shall be on the first row. In the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. In the third row, a, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an ox, uh, uh, onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be 12 stones with the names according, listen, to the names of the sons of Israel. It's interesting that the 12 stones mentioned there, the very First one is the one that John one that John mentions here. And the very last one is one that John mentions here. The first stone mentioned in the breastplate is the carnelian or the stardust stone. It represents, listen, the firstborn child of Jacob, which was anybody? Reuben. The, the, the firstborn child of Jacob was Reuben. The last stone mentioned here is Jasper, which represents the last-born child of Jacob, who was Joseph. No, I'm just kidding. Benjamin. Benjamin was the last-born child, right? Um, it was said that in wearing the breastplate Here, the high priest, it was said that he would be reminded to have the people upon his heart as he went in to minister before the Lord on behalf of all the people. It was representative of people, and he was going in to minister on behalf of. Interesting enough, Reuben's name means behold a son, and Benjamin's name means son of my right hand. This is a picture uh, from start to finish on that whole breastplate of the son, Jesus Christ, who would come on, all, all, on behalf of all people and live perfectly, die sacrificially, and raise from the dead victoriously to be seated at the right hand of God. This is the gospel message on a little breast, breastplate, folks. The Lord came for all people. He came for you. Um, some believe John saw uh, these specific zones to point the readers back to the covenant re- covenant relationship of God to Israel, which makes a lot of sense to me because I am a person who believes that the church did not replace Israel; that God still has a plan for Israel. When I look at the Bible, I don't say when it speaks about Israel, I think it's speaking about the church, especially in the New Testament. It is not. God has a plan for Israel. And it makes a lot of sense that perhaps this points us backward. As we know, if you believe in, if you if you reject replacement theology, then then you you believe that the tribulation period is primarily Jewish in the sense that God is turning his eyes back on Israel to point their hearts back to him. And so perhaps that's the point of these colors. What we know is John was mesmerized by the things that he saw, not just. Not just the things that he saw um, there on the throne and the description of the one who sat upon it, but also around the throne look with me at the rest of verse three. And around the throne there was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne there were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white, with golden crowns on their heads. So John mentions a rainbow in appearance of an emerald that was around the throne. Again, this is a similar description. Of Ezekiel and what he saw. Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 28 says that he saw a bow that appears in the cloud on the day of rain. He's clearly speaking about a rainbow. Uh, John, Ezekiel both see a rainbow. John says the colors of the rainbow are primarily green. You know, primarily have this hewn green color. On the breastplate, Of the high priest, the emerald stone represents Jacob's son, Judah, which means praise. Jesus was the lion from the tribe of what? Judah. Here we find another, just a reflection of Jesus. I tell you, why do we read the Old Testament? Because it speaks about Jesus all the way through. There's symbolisms. Everything that God did in the Old Testament is meant to point us to Jesus Christ, and, and there is incredible symbolisms and, and uh, Christophanies and all kinds of things in the Old Testament. It certainly is praise to know that the lion of the tribe of Judah is coming back and also understand the, the rainbow itself, what it represents the faithfulness of God to his promises, that God would never flood the earth again. Puritan John Trapp stated that it was a sign of grace. And the covenant of mercy, which is always fresh and green, about Christ's throne of grace. Not only do we see a rainbow around the throne, but notice we also see twenty-four thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. Now, there's great, uh, you know, discussion regarding these twenty-four elders. Who are they? Let's just consider the word twenty-four for a second. If we look back in the Bible, in the Old Testament specifically we know that numbers mean things, that God means, uh, you know, things by numbers. The number seven is the number of what? Completion, right? The number 24, if we reflect back into 1 Chronicles chapter 24, we look at the Levitical priesthood and David dividing up the Levitical priesthood, and he he takes 24 representatives from the, the tribe of Levi, and he says, you will represent the entire tribe in the service of God in the temple. It's, the number 24 is to represent groups of people. It's meant to represent a group of people. The question is, what group of people does it represent? Some believe that this is representing, uh, this, this is angels, that it's being spoken of here. I don't think that's true because never do we see um, angelic uh, you know, beings called elders in the Bible. So we believe that they're people. Some believe that it's speaking of all the Old Testament saints, you know, um, and, and, and that could be. Others believe that it could be speaking of the 12 tribes of Judah represented in 12 thrones and also the 12 apostles. I don't know if that's the case, but that could be as well. I see it as representing the 24 elders specifically because of the word elder and also because of some other things I'll show you in a second, but that it is speaking about 24 elders in the church, that it's just simply a representation of the church in heaven pre-tribulation. That's what I believe that, that this is representing, and here's why. Notice what they are clothed in. They're clothed in white garments. This represents the righteousness of Christ. Jesus has promised that those, he promised the church specifically in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, the church of Sardis, he said those who conquer would be clothed in white garments. Notice also that these 24 elders were given golden crowns on their heads. Um, Jesus told the church in Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, behold, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The crown being spoken of here is that not the diadem crown, but it's speaking about the Stephanos crown, which is a victor's crown. It's the crown that the Greeks would put upon the victors in the games that they would play, and it was just a laurel wreath that they would put on their heads. Interesting enough, back in this culture... Uh, If you were a, um, you know, a king of a providence or you were a ruler of some sort and you had a crown, uh, you know, in Roman, when Rome was in rule, what these uh, rulers would be required to do when they would come before the Caesar is cast their crown before Caesar to to say that he is the true ruler, that he's the one that put it there. Um, You know, we also find here, so this is the Stephanos crown, same idea. There is only one diadem, and Jesus Christ is wearing that one. Here's the interesting thing also. What we find in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, can only be sang by the church. It's a song in heaven that's being sang, and here's, it's the song of the redeemed, and here's what it says. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed your uh, people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a king and priest to God, they shall reign on the earth. So guess what? We'll be joining in with this song in heaven forever and ever. You should probably get to know the lyrics. You should probably put that to memory now. John draws our attention now to the things that he sees from the throne. Look at verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. Now, immediately as I read this passage, my mind flashed back to the storm we had on Friday night. Not really, but it really flashed back to the Old Testament and thinking about the storm that took place on Mount Sinai when the Lord descended upon that mountain and the people were afraid because of what they saw and what they heard. They saw lightnings and flashes. They saw the top of the mountain as it were on fire, thunderings and lightnings going on, kind of a similar experience. This is symbolic of the presence of God. He is almighty and awesome. I don't care what kind of storm manifests itself down here and the thundering and the lightning and how awesome those might be, nothing in comparison to what we will see in heaven before the throne of God. Exodus chapter 9, verse 19, verse 9 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. And so the Lord, going down to verse 16, Moses tells these guys to consecrate themselves. And then uh, verse 16, we pick it up, and it says, On the morning of the third day, isn't that interesting? On the th- morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud of the, uh, on the mountain. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Remember what happened after Moses went up. That's when the law came down. The law came down, and you know what came down with it? The judgment of man. The judgment of sin. This is representation of the judgment of God upon mankind for sin. Here we find... It's an awesome picture. It's a, tr- it's a picture that we see people trembling before. There's a reverence and a fear before the Lord. He is holy and awesome. And he does not let sin slide, folks. We have to pay- somebody has to pay for your sin. Either you pay for it or Jesus will pay for it. But somebody has to pay for it. That was the purpose of the law coming down to point us to Jesus Christ. It's, a, it's not a means of salvation. It demonstrates we need salvation, that we are desperate for somebody to take our place because we cannot fit the bill. And thankfully, Jesus Christ came to do that for us. This is representation of the judgment of God in form of the terrible wrath that is about to be poured out on the earth. John seeing God prepping and preparing for the tribulation period. Just as the children of Israel were terrified by the presentation of God in in this light, so too should our world be terrified for what is about to transpire on earth from chapter 6 on. And I would wish that on no one, folks. I would wish that on no one. We'll see uh, references to this mighty storm as we move through the book of Revelation, through the tribulation period. We'll we'll see this imagery, the same imagery, the lightnings, the thunderings, these sorts of things as we move through. This is... A storm of judgment that God is about to rain down upon the earth. This brings us to what John sees before the throne, the rest of verse 5. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. John sees seven burning torches of fire. Now, this could represent one of two things. In the Old Testament, this represents war, torches of fire. We see this in, with Gideon in Judges chapter 7 as well as the destruction of Nineveh and Naaman chapter 2. John goes on to identify for us here, though, the seven torches of fire as the seven spirits of God. And we know, because we read in Revelation chapter 1, what those seven spirits of God are, the seven manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Do you know in the New Testament when the Holy Spirit came down upon man that he appears, as it were, of tongues of fire upon their heads? So this is a reference, no doubt, of the Holy Spirit here. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, the sevenfold uh, manifestation of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, sh- the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord So here we, representation of the Holy Spirit here in what I believe to be him coming down on the earth, not necessarily for a picture of drawing people to God, but he's going to be used in a sense of war. MacArthur commentates on this and says, John's vision depicts God as ready to make war on sinful, rebellious mankind and the Holy Spirit as his war torch. The comforter of those who love Christ will be the consumer, or yeah, the consumer of those who reject him. Wow, what a picture, what a sobering moment. You think about this. He also sees before him a sea of glass like crystal. Again, Ezekiel comments about this. He says that he saw the likeness of an expanse shining like awe inspiring crystal. In Ezekiel chapter 1, 22 and verse 26, um, you know, some people believe, in, including John Wolford that this points us back to the sea of brass, as it were, in the temple of God, where the priests would wash themselves. Remember how the temple was set up. When you would walk into the temple, there was the temple courts, and then there was the 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 holy place, and then there was the holy of holy places, right? And 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 so as the, the priests would come in, there was a process to come in. And there were specific things laid out in the temple that all reflected Christ in some nature or form, but there but it was practical. And the way that they came to the Lord, there was what was called sort of this the sea of washing, which was this place where they would wash themselves, the priests would wash themselves before they presented themselves before the Lord. It was a ceremonial cleansing. We find this in First Chronicles chapter four, verse six. It says, "He also made ten basins in which to wash." As he's setting up the tabernacle, he's telling us what he's doing, and set five on the south side and five on the north side. In these were they were to rinse off what was used for the burnt offerings and the sea was for the priests to wash in. And so there were, there were five sinks on different sides as they would come in, and those were used to wash the utensils as they would make the sacrifices to the Lord. But the priests themselves would have to be washed in the sea. Why would they have to be washed? Not only ceremonially to be clean before the Lord, but do you know that was a bloody job? It was an incredible bloody job. I don't know if you've ever considered how many thousands of Lambs were slain in a day. How much blood was spilt all over that place. You ever walked into a butcher block? You ever seen somebody, you ever seen, you know, but, uh, you've gone to a butchery where they, people are being, where animals are being slain? It's a slaughterhouse. That's what this place was. Why? For, for the sins of mankind. The shedding of blood was a bloodbath and these men had would be washed as they would walk through that. Some, uh, Walvord believes that this is speaking of the washing of you and I through the Word of God, this representation that it is the washing of the Word of God could be. Here's what we know. It was to see a sea of glass like crystal. Next, we find John speaking about what he saw in the midst of the throne. Look at verse 6. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in the front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature was with the face of a man. The fourth living creature like, uh, like a, an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them, with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, 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 as the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, this is a crazy depiction of some gnarly-looking creatures in heaven, is it not? Thinking like, whoa, this seems a little crazy to me. This, is, this seems scary. It's not scary. John, describing what he knows to describe, he's trying to help us understand in his own words what he's seeing. So let's see what we can glean from this. First, let's consider where they were. These creatures were around the throne of God. It's better translated, in the midst of the throne of God. They could be, uh, that could indicate that they are seraphim or cherubim. Isaiah describes them as seraphim in his uh, depiction of heaven in Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 2 and 3, he says, Above him, speaking of God, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and two he covered with his face, two he covered with his feet, he covered his feet, and two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the only mention of the word seraphim in the Bible. Seraphim, a type of angel. Um, Ezekiel, interesting enough, he calls them cherubim. Go figure. Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 20 and 22. He says these were the living creatures that I saw under the under the God of Israel. By the sea key bar by the keybar canal canal, and I knew that they were cherubim. Each had four faces, and each four wings, and underneath their wings was li- the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces who appeared, whose appearance I had seen by the keybar canal, each one of them went straight forward. So which one is it? Is it seraphim or is it cherubim? Some commentators say, hey, there's no difference. What we know is they're angelic beings. That's what we do know. We know that for sure. And they have some great symbolisms that relate to the characteristics of God. Here they're full of eyes in front and behind, representing the omniscience and omnipresence of God. Do you know the Lord is all-seeing, all-knowing? He's everywhere at once at all times. We don't understand that because we're limited by time and space. We're one single entity of person that can only be at one place at one time. God is everywhere at once always. Like, in other words, like when you're calling to God, he's, like, he's there. He's right there. You're not asking Him to come into your presence. He already exists in your presence. He's everywhere all the time. That's awesome to me. That tells me of relationship God wants with me. He wants to be with me all the time. That's, that's an incredible thing. So we see that he is, he has the, they have these, these eyes just like the Lord. He sees everything. He is everywhere all at the same time. They have four faces on these creatures. And some say that this represents four, all life forms. For the lion is the king of the beasts. the ox being the greatest of the service animals, man being the highest of God's creation, and the eagle being the most majestic and supreme over all the birds. Others suggest it represents the divine majesty of God that surrounds His throne. Some even relate the four faces of these creatures to the four Gospels. As we see, you know, the Gospel of Matthew representing Jesus as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the King of Israel. We see the the Gospel writer Mark present Jesus as the ox who was the servant of all. We see... Luke described Jesus as man reflecting on his humanity, and then we see John representing Jesus as the eagle in flight, in majesty, in glory, the divinity of Jesus Christ. It's also interesting to note that the 12 tribes of Israel camped under these four flags. Interesting enough, some with the the camp of Reuben had the flag with with a man upon it. The tribe of Dan symbolized the eagle. The the tribe of Ephraim, the calf or the ox. And the tribe of Judah, the lion. Let me tell you what I think. I'm just kidding. But these are all interesting. And what I think is more important, though, is what are they doing? What are these creatures doing? They're declaring the holiness and the worthiness of God as they sing unceasingly, Day and night, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. Holy, I think you get the idea. Day and night, unceasing, declaring the holiness of God, the worthiness of God, the glory of God. No doubt John was captured by the worship that was happening there in heaven. What a picture that you and I should take note of. Do you know what the chief activity in heaven will be? Worship. Worship. And do you know what we are doing right now? We're practicing. We're practicing. Are you practicing day and night unceasing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who was and is and is to come? Are you practicing worship him? And when you rise up from out of your bed and when you lay your head down at night, are you a worshiper? Are you worshiping him? We have the opportunity to practice now for it will be the chief activity in heaven. Next, we see the response of the elders in verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down before Him who is seated on the throne and worshiped Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. Here we find the response of these elders here. Notice it says that whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and gave thanks to the one who sits upon the throne, these 24 elders fell down before him. They just were on their faces before the Lord as the declaration went out through heaven about the glory of who God is. Notice not only that, Not only did they positionally fall down, which is humility. It's a picture of humility saying, you're greater than I am, Lord. It's something we should be practicing as well. Something you should get uh, used to doing. I don't know how often you find yourself on your face before the Lord, but it's a good practice. It's a good practice, and it keeps you humble. keeps you, you know, it's not enough to kneel down. Let's get on our face before the Lord prostrate before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and say, Lord, I humble myself. You are king and I am not. Draw me to yourself. Help me to understand what it is that you want from me, Lord. I want to give you honor and glory through my life. In all humility. Not only did they bow down before him, but look, they had those Stephanos crowns on them. And when that, when the worship when the worship in this specific moment broke out, they w- they got off their throne they cast, they bowed down and cast their crown before the Lord, before his throne. This is also something we should get used to doing now. When somebody says, hey, they, you did a great job, or thanks for saving me, or whatever it is, or thanks for sharing the gospel with me, our response should be, boom, praise God. It's all about the Lord. All glory should go to him immediately, immediately. I was just talking to a fellow the other day, and he—he was—I was was really thanking him for how the Lord used him in my life, and I was like, "Thank you so much, man, for being obedient to God and for, uh, you know, for for the things that the Lord used you in my life." And immediately, the guy goes back to me and says, "Hey, I just want to be clear—I'm no special man. The Lord is the one that deserves all the glory and honor." And I said, "I know that. I'm not giving you glory, dummy." No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Wait, if you're watching, I'm sorry, but... That's not what I meant. But it was awesome because that's what we're, that's, what, that's, the, that's the idea of casting your crown before the Lord. I, I have a kind of a problem with us getting glory for anything. And the reason why is because Ephesians 2.10 tells me that I'm His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he created beforehand that I should walk in. I'm just a guy walking in the good works that God created for me to walk in. How come I get a pat on the back, you know, for that? Why do I get a crown? I don't understand that, but I trust the Lord. And I know that we should be quick to give him glory, and we should lay it all out before him and just give him praise for the things that he's doing in our lives. Notice they cast their their thrones before the Lord, And they would say, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Man, what a day that will be. What a day that will be when you and I are in his presence one day, and we have the opportunity to bow down before him, And cast whatever crown that we have before us. Did you know you're going to get a crown? Did you know when you stand before the Lord as a believer, you're not judged for your sin? That was judged on Calvary. Jesus Christ took the the price of your sin. He paid the price, the penalty for your sin. You're not going to answer for your sin. What you're going to answer for are your works. What did you do with Jesus after you became saved? That's where your crown comes from, friend. What you do with Jesus and how you allow the Lord to use you in your life. And I'm telling you what, there's gonna be some people with some massive crowns in heaven. Massive crowns. You're gonna be looking at, I'm, actually, I'm gonna be looking at you going, dude, I, how come you got that thing? I didn't get that thing, you know? Not really, there's not gonna be any of that, is there? Nobody's gonna be going, hey, what, how come they got that crown and I didn't get that? No one's gonna care about that. You know what's interesting about this? There's no division in heaven. There's no division in heaven. Nobody's saying, hey, I went to this church, I should get that, or, you know, I belong to this brand or whatever it is. Uh uh-uh, uh, none of that exists. Because finally, we'll be able to see and know as we're known, be able to see clearly without any, anything clouding our eyes and any pride welling up in our hearts. What a marvelous day that will be. Are you going to heaven friend? Are you going to the, are, do you know the Lord? Is he your Lord and Savior? When Jesus is he going, can he oh, is he the door for you? Can he open up heaven for you this morning? If today would be your last day, do you know that you're going to heaven? That is the greatest question that every human being should be concerned about. And if you have Jesus, then there's nothing to be worried about because he'll see you right through the grave. But if you don't know the Lord today, let today be the day that you call him Lord, that you call him Savior, that you allow him to cleanse you from your sin, wash you clean. Here later on, we're going to be doing some baptisms, representation of four different people who have given their hearts to the Lord, and they're going to be buried, as it were, into that watery grave and be risen to newness of life. It doesn't save you. It's a representation that's symbolic of what Jesus Christ has done for us. All you have to do is put your faith in Jesus. And I hope you do that if you don't know him this morning. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your grace and goodness in our lives this morning, Lord. We thank you for your word, Lord, and for all the great reminders. There's not one single dot or, or, or tittle in this thing called the Bible, Lord, that is irrelevant, it all means something to us. And Lord, we are as individuals sitting here in this place corporately to worship you, and yet you are ministering to us in a lot of different ways in this place this morning. For some of us, Lord, you're reminding us of eternity. Maybe we've been saved for a long time and eternity sort of become dim in our heart and we're not longing for heaven like we once were. Lord, will you reignite that? that fire this morning in our hearts. Lord, for some of us here this morning, Lord, we we know we're going to heaven. The problem is we're, not, we're really not telling anybody else about it. And so we're excited about what we get, Lord, kind of self-focused in that way. Will you take that excitement, Lord? Will you take the just the the zeal that we have for wanting to be with you in paradise forever, Lord? And will you help it to turn into a fuel, an evangelistic fuel in our hearts to go out and share the gospel with people, Lord? We know that that's what, as we think about eternity, that's kind of the point of it, is to to put an urgency in our heart to share with others that they can have the same promise that we have through Jesus Christ. And for those here this morning, Lord, maybe maybe somebody online that doesn't know you. You're drawing them to yourself right now. You want to be in right relationship with them. You want to cleanse them of their sin. And they know in their hearts, Lord, even right now, you're speaking to them. You, they know that they know that they know that they're not sure they're going to heaven. And that could be because you're not Lord. Maybe somebody said a prayer a while ago and no change in life or anything, and just going through the motions or going to church, thats not that doesn't save anybody, Lord. So will you just put the right response in every person's heart this morning? We pray, Lord, in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus. And as we continue to pray, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know Jesus, today is the day. If you're here this morning, I just want you to lift your hand. I'll lead you in a prayer of salvation to invite Jesus to come in and be the Lord of your life. Anyone at all this morning, just lift your hand up. I'll just pray a prayer with you. Jesus wants to cleanse you of your sin, wants to give you the eternal hope. He wants to give you security that you can know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven. If that's you this morning, you pray this prayer with a sincerity of heart. Lord Jesus, I come to you now and I ask you to cleanse me of my sins. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I believe in the cross that you were crucified on, that you died for me, Jesus, that you rose again from the dead for me, and I'm putting all my trust and hope in you. You are my Lord in Jesus' name. Amen.